0: Powered by Reebok, this is Under the Surface with Annalie Mailey. I would like to have the conversations about like performance, managing stress, anxiety, self-doubt, the whole bubble of identity and like who we are. It's Annalie Mailey's Under the Surface. All right. Hello, welcome. Welcome to Under the Surface. This is season two. Um, We're kicking off. We're super excited to announce that Reebok is on board. So it will now be Under the Surface, pumped by Reebok. Um, It's super cool to have them on board, not only for the the gear is dope, but to be able to have a brand who is willing to support um, spaces where female athletes get to interview you know, all different types of people in all different walks of life. And on top of that, having a brand support me doing what I absolutely love, which is learning people's stories and being able to talk about all of the taboo things that happen under the surface. I'm really blessed. I'm really excited. Season two, we're kicking off with an awesome guest. So, welcome to Season Two, Under the Service, Pumped by Reebok. And We are going to start with David Stiff. Thank you for coming on. It's going to be a bit of a different episode today. We're going to start talking a little bit about his life and we'll get into that in a second, but then we're also going to talk about some of my experiences recently and then some experiences that are broad to a lot of athletes and what they experience and David is actually a psychologist and he has played many games in the NBL. But again, we'll get into that to start off with. Thank you for joining us, David.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Well, we'll start by giving you. A little gift from Reebok. Awesome. We'll be, we'll be doing that from now on. We'll kit you out. When I messaged him actually saying, I was like, what are your sizes for stuff? He's like, I don't think I'm hip enough. I think you're pretty hip. <laughs> this guy is hip to be wearing Reebok.
1: Actually, one of my my first experience was uh, in 92, I played for the Hobart Devils yeah. and we were sponsored by Reebok. No way. <laughs> and like I'm this young, fr- freaky, like all over the shop kind of kid and I, I jump onto the court and it's like I'm just excited to be there. And I'm lining up at a free for line, and I bend over to pump up my Reebok pumps. <laughs> and uh, Ronnie Ratliff, who who play, who was American, plays for Gold Coast. Uh, as soon as I stood up and 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 from pumping up and just being really pumped up, he looked at me and goes, "Oh oh." <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was in that moment of, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I should tone it down a bit.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, de-pump. Can you, uh, for those who don't know, what it, when you say you were pumping up your Reeboks, oh, like, what did you yeah, explain? The to-
1: on the tongue, they had this little basketball. And yeah. if you pumped it, it would inflate in the shoe so to make it a tighter fit. Love that. Yeah. I
0: love that for you. I feel like they should bring that back.
1: They, they really should. That's, that was really cool.
0: That's actually a vibe. Like imagine you're getting ready to do something and you're just like, hold on, let me just –
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's
0: kind of cool. It's kind of dope. Um, to give a little background, you are a psychologist, but also you played fifteen seasons in the NBL. Um, you won six championships, which actually written right here it says it's equal first for most individual championships in league history. Did you know that, or am I just spitting random facts at you? Uh,
1: no, I no, I I knew that one. <laughs> I've been tracking everyone that comes close. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like trying to sabotage their career. Yeah, if I can, you take to them out, right? Supremacy.
0: Yeah, yeah. you must you must as uh you got to keep your uh uh, what is it called? Your status. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's important. Um, and then you've transitioned from basketball into becoming a psychologist. I'd, but before I talk about that transition post basketball, um, I want to talk about you as a basketball player a little bit and how you got into sport. Like, were you a sporty kid? Was that something you always wanted to do? Or
1: yeah, I had a lot of energy, and Mum and Dad were a bit older. Relative to my peers, and so, and so if I could get out the energy on a field that that was more helpful for them. Oh yeah. God bless them for it. And <laughs> and look, I started off with football and was really into football, mm-hmm. but the AFL. But then mum wouldn't let me in the house until I, she'd hosed me off because in those <laughs> days footy grounds are so muddy, right? They're oh, so yeah, yeah. manicured now. It's, oh yeah, it's so it's, pretty. Yeah, so soft. But <laughs> but that's why the skills are better to a yeah. degree. But uh, yeah, so she would have to hose me off and it was you know, a cold Sunday morning, yeah, yeah. it was freezing. And so then I discovered basketball. Someone said, we need we need someone to fill in. And so I went to that and then I didn't get hosed down after games. I was like, oh, this is really yeah. pleasant, it's indoors. <laughs> and, and then in my first game, I didn't know what was going on, yeah. which was pretty much a narrative of my career. But especially in the first game, uh, I got fouled shooting and then – my coach had to call a timeout to explain to me what a free throw was and teach me how to do a free throw and ask permission from the um, from the referee if she could if he could take me out and show me how to do a free throw. How old
0: were you, sorry? In do you remember? I
1: was about seven. Nice. Oh, this is this is another century, right? This yeah, is the eighties. Yeah. yeah. So you know, basketball was really relatively novel as well. Yeah. And I'm I so he taught me the bucket shot. I made the first, missed the second, mm-hmm. and then I never got better than fifty percent for the. <laughs> <laughs> like,
0: it's because it's because you didn't stick with the bucket shot hey yeah
1: maybe yeah
0: things might have been different
1: wouldn't have been any worse
0: (laughs) (laughs) um you as a basketball player in your early adolescence moving into your kind of professional space or whatever were you was there an age where you remember where you were like oh I actually am really passionate about this basketball thing or was the passion something that came later after you know like you being a tall what are you? six, six, eight, six nine, yep. six, ten,
1: mm, six, eight to six, yeah. ten. Depends on
0: the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. And but age. like, yeah. He's
1: now I'm six three. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. yeah I rem- remind my dad of that most days. He's <laughs> six four these days. Yeah. Shout out poor Mealy. Anyway, um, was that passion thing something that came later for you, or?
1: Um, See, I never really. I played to play, like, mm. and I worked in the AFL system for six years as well. Okay. Right. so I got. I got a bit of an inclination to, or insight into what other athletes were going through in that there were a few AFL players who who were drafted just because they were good at what they did. They didn't actually technically aspire to be a professional footballer. Yeah. And likewise with me, I'm just playing and you want to play like as well as you can. Yeah. And because more because of my height, not Mm -hmm. necessarily because of my skill, I kept getting opportunities to advance. Yeah. And then – I kind of looked around when I was 20. I'm like, oh, so nobody else is you – know, everyone I played with growing up aren't playing anymore. They've yeah. dropped out for different reasons and I just kept going and I was like, oh, well. the first real any passionate moment I felt about basketball was in 88, 89, 89 I think. Um, Andrew Gaze was at Seton Hall mm-hmm. and I was, at, I was in year 12 and – He made the final and it was a big deal. And even for basketball in Australia, like the TV actually covered it. Yeah. And I remember sneaking into the – we had an AV room back in those days, audio-visual room, right? (laughs) Because everyone's got a laptop now, it's fine. But but in those days, you had to squirrel off into this little space and the PE teacher let a couple of us watch the game in real time. And at that point, I was like, well, I'd like to go to college. Mm -hmm. And so I think that drove me and my focus, all right, well, how do I get to college? Yeah. But even beyond that I wasn't really aspiring beyond that. It was oh college looks cool. I wonder what I could do. And so that probably narrowed my focus and my energy at a at a point where it was still really probably quite diffuse and open and I was really just meandering. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But do you ever look back on that and think, oh, wow, I was really able to just live in the moment because I wasn't looking too far ahead or was it such an unconscious thing for you at that point to be like, oh, I think this is what what I want to do and go day by day? And do you remember a shift to where all of a sudden you were looking further than right in front of you or?
1: I don't remember the shift. Um, I've never never been a fan of looking too far ahead. Mm -hmm. Um, That's never really helped me. So – uh, a lot of it was more just all right well this is where I am this is what I'll do and we'll see where this leads and maybe i'll 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 look at like two or three years in advance like so when I got to college I was like all right well, what am I gonna do well well I'll go, I'll try my luck back in the NBL or maybe if it goes really well maybe I could make the NBA but the idea was uh in high school I'll try and get to college mm-hmm. and then as a part of getting to college I had this year between January and September where uh I, there was nothing I I could really do Mm -hmm. and so I got a gig down in Hobart and that was my first season of NBL and it was a truncated season because I finished when I went over in September to start college but I may not have even gone to the NBL but there was this gap and I got the opportunity and so then when I was in college I'm like well I'm lucky relative to my collegiate peers because Mm. I've got a chance maybe to come back and play professionally so I'll try and get as good as I can get and then see where it goes professionally but it was never like like when you had Jade on, she took, like I got the sense that, you know, from an early age, even though she may have discovered basketball, yeah, it became a burning like, oh, yeah. this is where I could go, right?
0: That passion. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I, I never had that to a long-term degree. It evolved. Yeah. And it came online at different times. But I think getting back to what I was saying with the AFL players is well, sometimes you just land somewhere just because everyone else has sort of fallen away yeah. and you're still there. Yeah. And that can be really disorienting. Yeah. Yeah. And actually that's where like imposter syndrome can begin to a degree and that's what I I noticed with a lot of those athletes. Yeah. it's was like I, I didn't design to be here and I'm still here. What do I do?
0: Yeah. I'd like to bookmark that because I really would like to come back to the whole imposter syndrome thing because I have a little bit of experience with that. But I really want to talk about your professional career just a little bit before yep. we move on. As a professional athlete, you were a high-performing professional athlete. Was there points in your career where – you felt that, like, what am I really doing here every day? And did you feel like, you know, maybe maybe that's when you thought, oh, maybe I should get into psychology or maybe you were – were you always able to kind of regulate your thoughts on such an even plane? Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a, a skill that we learn, right, at some point yeah. in our careers.
1: Yeah. Well, in, in past podcasts you've, you've um, s- spoken in more depth um, about, like – how do you regulate your emotion like when it comes to sport? Like, Yeah. And that's a problem that your nervous system has to work out. And how does the nervous system work that out? Well, it's partly your own genetics, mm-hmm. partly your own life experience and, and modelling of parents, family, friends and what you've observed in others, right? And so what I learned is because I have a bit of a bent with Eastern spiritual traditions, yeah, I, I sort of – Really, tried to impose a level of stability mm-hmm. on my outlook and on my emotions because I was sick of the
2: yeah the highs the real and lows. Highs and lows. Mm.
1: So that was actually an active process, and I can remember quite clearly because in college we were all over the shop. Yeah, and like. Before a game in the college system, they were really hyped to play. Let's get really hyped and all this. <laughs> and then we'd come out and get smashed by sixty. Yeah. What's the point of getting fucking hyped when Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like I didn't did I never understood that either. It didn't I'm make sense to me. Yeah. Right? But that's partly our temperament, mm-hmm. right? That's partly who we are. Um and maybe maybe being an Australian might have actually contributed to that too, right? Our our cultural yeah. sensibility or sense of self. But so I remember when I was in about my fifth season in Adelaide, and I was injured. And so I must have been reading some really wacky Buddhist stuff at the time. And it talked about emotions. And so I I consciously, when I missed half a season or so, I consciously sat in each game and watched as though the whole volume was down and I would just watch people Mm -hmm. and I would watch like competitors, um, teammates. I just watched them emotionally just sit back the game's going on i'm just sitting back just observing yeah because it's all that observer self yeah. and what i noticed was, god people spend a lot of energy like they're all pumped and then they're down and they're all pumped and i'm like yeah. oh man I, th- I think i'm gonna i'm just gonna try the level level approach yeah because i don't want to be too up i don't want to be too down and part of it was because i wanted to escape the lows okay because when i was in hobart and I was more of the franchise player and had a lot of responsibility in terms of performance for two years when I returned from college. I felt like a criminal walking around the streets when we lost. Yeah. Like it really impacted me. Like I was embarrassed and ashamed because yeah. we weren't winning. And I was sick of that. And I didn't think I was sustainable over the long term. Yeah. To be, to keep doing that. But that's not for everyone. Like some people really like the highs. Yeah. Okay. If you really like the highs, perfect. But you're going to get the equivalent lows. Yeah. And so I took, I don't know if it's a cheat's way out, a soft cock way out. Yep. I don't know. I don't have the answer for that. Yep. But I chose I'm going to try and minimize my lows and that means I'll be be—I'll be capping my highs. But one thing I learned from that was that I was able to more sustain my consistency of effort.
0: Yeah. Do it, at that time, like being a male athlete, right, I imagine that the talks about like, like mental health, mental stability, emotional resilience, all of those things, they didn't happen often. Were you able to have those conversations with people around you of like this is what I'm doing? Um, and was was anyone receptive or you didn't really communicate? Oh god,
1: no, I'm not telling anyone
0: Yeah. <laughs> <No. laughs> yeah.
1: But that's the that's the time. Yeah. One should suffer in silence and just yeah. carry on.
0: Yeah. I thought that would be the case because I was trying to imagine in my head, I was like, how would you then communicate that to the people around you that you're working on your brain? It's like I feel like that would be received as like, oh, that's so weak. Like, you know, and even now we're still struggling with um people being able to talk more openly about even just working on maybe something about concentration or it could be something about like what you said, managing highs and lows. And we're getting to a point now where people might see that as important as, strengthening your calf muscle or, like, being able to yeah. do a finger roll, things like that. But I, I do imagine at the time it wouldn't be something that you'd share. Like, e- even with, like, your friends and family, not really, or that was really all just you insular kind of going through that.
1: Well, well part of it, you, you, always, you always have to look at the context, and the context is the individual. Mm-hmm. So some people are really happy to share. Yeah. I'm not one of those people. Yeah. So you've got to overlay that. Like my, my reluctance to share any of this with others yeah. is as much a product of who I am as much as the times. I'm not going to blame the times because yeah. you're not meant to say those things. Yeah. I mean, when I, was, when I was in high school, I was playing basketball in the late 80s, that's a weak woman's sport because yeah. I went to a school where it's all footy. Yeah. So, and my last name is Stiff. Yeah. So I (laughs) learned pretty quickly, right? What people say about you, what people think about you, that there's a gap. Yeah. There's a gap between what is and what is perceived. Yeah. Right. And so I I think that if you actually, I lost my spot there. Where was I going? Like, I'm talking about like
0: communicating with with the people around you. Yeah.
1: That's a product of, that's as much a product of me not doing that. But one thing I did have that was a real stability. Throughout my career, was I had really great mentors yeah. whom I could discuss these things with one on one, and it would be a phone call, like yeah. to my old coach Mike Slasher, or to Steve braney or to Phil Smythe, Those guys, I would always identify someone that this is who I turn to for these conversations. Yeah, I'm not sharing them openly because everyone thought I was a nutbag anyway. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't do the traditional jock stuff. Yeah, right. Like I would be go off wandering, like before a game. I don't. I didn't sleep. I'd be walking around the city. Yeah. Like exploring, right? That's just my thing. Uncommon. And so <laughs> if I was off reading Buddhist books or something like yeah. that, well, and my teammates, are, they'll give me a bit of shit about it, but yeah. that's just me. Yeah. So it's a choice that you make if you want to share, because if you want to share, now you're vulnerable. Yeah. And the predators, as far as your nervous system is concerned, the predators can see me now. I'm visible. Yeah. Now, if you're visible and things work out well, boom, that's great, best outcome, right? Because you move up in the social hierarchy. Yeah. Your your place in 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 the group is really um, secure. But if you're vulnerable, you go out there and it's a miss. Now the predators can see me. Yeah. And so, as far as your nervous systems go, that's di- that's disastrous.
2: That's the fight or flight. That's something yeah. to really fear. Yeah.
1: But it's not a it's not necessarily an evil in the world. It's a it's a product or it's consequential of that's what how things are. Yeah. So yeah, you can go out on a limb and you can talk about these things and you will help a lot of people. Yeah. But you're also really highly visible and so potentially vulnerable. Yep. And so a lot of athletes won't confide to a coach or to their club about what's going on for them. And on one level, it's like, well, fair enough, they're an employer and Maybe in a contract negotiation, maybe that might get held against you and not even consciously,
2: mm-hmm. but it
1: might just go in the, the debit column or, you know, the anti, I don't know, I always go, I failed accounting, but you know what yeah. I mean? A column <laughs> where it's not good. Yeah. Right? Whereas, you know, if you do things w- well on the court, then that goes in the credit column and that, that looks good and then people or coaches or organisations are going to weigh up and
0: yeah personally i struggle with this like cuz i think being vulnerable is such a strength of mine like i really put myself out there to talk about things and i believe that i have a platform to do so and the the vulnerability thing i have found my own peace with it i think the i found my peace with like people you know knowing parts of my story that i used to be really terrified of and i've i found peace with that the one area that i still feel like oh shit terrified about is basketball coaches and clubs not wanting to invest in me because they see my mental health as a disadvantage. And when I say mental health, I don't always mean that it's bad. I just am open about mental health and things that I talk about and I'm open about anxiety. I'm open about my feelings of, of you know, when I experience depressive episodes and my panic attacks and stuff. And I've always found a lot of strength in that. But recently I've had this like overwhelming fear that it's going to be used against me in a basketball sense because right. it has and I, I think that I, that it's, that is so scary as an athlete to be like, all right, well, right, we're finding our power in these words of like speaking out. But also that can be used to be like, oh, you're not stable enough to make this team. Yeah. Oh, we can't put you in this high pressure situation. And it's like, no, I didn't say any of that. I just like, I said that I'm, I'm dealing with stuff. I'm not saying that it's it minimizing my ability to perform, but it can be taken that way, mm. which is terrifying. It really is. Yeah. Because, like, where do you go from there? Like, how do you deal with the fear of other people not seeing you the way that you want to be seen, right?
1: Hmm. But how much control do you have over
0: that? None. Isn't that scary? Like
1: – Well, it can be scary, but it can also be really quite liberating. Yeah. It depends on your perspective.
0: The control thing is a, a big piece of, I think, a lot of athletes' lives. Because when you talk about stability, right, like – being a professional athlete, we don't have a lot of that, unless you sign a long-term contract, right? Um, and you have that, you know, financial stability, and you have that stability of where your home is. For the in, in terms of just physical environments and tangible things, we don't have a huge amount of that stability, right? How how would you counsel someone or talk to someone about like? As a professional athlete, we move here, there and everywhere. How do we find that stability in our, you know, in the non-tangibles, I guess?
1: Well, the first thing is that the stability, our nervous system doesn't like unpredictability, right? So it loves it before a game, who's going to win, who's going to lose, who's going to play good, who's going to play bad, but it's in this nice package because after two hours, the game's complete and we know the answer. Mm -hmm. So that unpredictability is actually really quite stimulating. Right? Yeah, but something like COVID comes in; everything changes. Who knows what's going to happen? And it's, it's unbounded. So that inst- that unpredictability is really destabilizing for the nervous system, right? Yeah. So, so that that's the first thing. But humans have been trying to solve this for forever, <laughs> right? Because that's that's the essence of religion. Yeah. Right. But you look at say the Stoics from ancient Greece and Rome, mm-hmm. right? So there's a famous Um, Stoic, uh, Epictetus, and he was famously a slave who became free. But his perspective was, well, you can shackle my arms and my legs, but you can't imprison my mind. If you've imprisoned my mind, then you've won, right? And so what's that touching on? That's touching on the sense that, all right, there's a lot of shit out there that I can't control, Mm -hmm. but I can control my sense of self or how I relate to what's happening to me. So it's not necessarily that, you can control anything, but you can control your perspective or your response or how you interpret the event, right? And that's almost the ultimate form of control. That's all the athlete really has. But then you have more control as an athlete. You have what you put in your body. Yeah. Right? You have how, how, you, how you interpret a good game or a bad game.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One thing I've noticed with males that I played with, I can't speak to females, but for males that I played with who became fathers... After the initial like lack of sleep stuff, <laughs> yeah. they
2: tend to be
1: they te- it tends they tend to be better yeah. professionals. But what's really changed? Their perspective on things, right? It's their ability to zoom out and mm-hmm. see the bigger picture, right? And so, if you get home after a bad game and you're really disappointed, and there's no one there, maybe there's a dog or a partner, but there's no there's no kid. Yeah for example in this example so you're free to just wallow in self pity yeah but if you get home and there's a there's a little baby there or, or a dog or something like that but, and they distract you from what's happened even for you 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 have 10% less misery yeah well, that accumulates after each game. That's a big win, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. But it,
1: that's just the that's just a minor thing. But what's really changed? Nothing's really changed other than your perspective to things. You've been able to change your relationship to what's happened to you, mm-hmm. and being able to find a perspective that enables you to continue on. Yeah. Right, and that's always within your control. Yeah. But the other thing that is, which it's kind of developmental. So when you're a young athlete, you've spoken um, a lot about this, right? Where, well, how much should I, you know, my image be about me as a basketballer? Yeah. Well, Okay, there's a period in your career where it's probably developmentally appropriate where you're completely obsessed about what you do and who you are and you're completely enmeshed. Yeah. Fair enough. Because Mm -hmm. you know what? If you want to be good, you're probably going to have to go through that for a period. Yeah. But then there's a point in your career, marker, and this is what no one really explains and bitter experience is the only way to get through it, is you actually, as you're as your career proceeds, you need to be able to remove yourself, remove yourself. And you've spoken about yeah. that, right? And you're noticing that for yourself. Yep. Right. But you've got bigger fish to fry when you start out. And that's, I've got to prove myself. Yep. To whom? Well, to everybody and to myself that I can play in this level. Yeah. Right. Once that's taken care of, now you need to actually be able to de-invest from your sport. So when you're not there, you're not there. Yep. So that when you're back, you're back. It's, right.
0: such a, it's such a fine line, I feel, yeah. like, to be able to separate yourself from what you do. Like, because I, 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 I'm i almost 100% sure that I've explained this before, but, like, the pillars of identity, right, a lot of the time as athletes it's just, like, the sport and then it's held up by the me um, and you take away the sport and your sense of identity kind right. of, you know, and I guess, like, you could call that, you know, in your example the kid or wife partner whatever could be the other you know knowing that you're a partner a father mother artist whatever or mm. your got other pillars of identity that can kind of hold up who you are so when the basketball gets shaky you're kind of like you can rely on other parts of yourself yeah, right you,
1: you, you uncover that you're more than your basketball identity mm-hmm. right but actually the only way to do that is by having negative experiences where you're like oh no man I've I've got to get my I got to get it together cuz I can't sustain this yeah Right, but that's actually a part of the process, a part of the journey, of being an athlete. But that's also not just being an athlete. That's if you're if you want to master something, if you want to be really good at something, there's gonna be pain, and yeah. there's gonna be those moments, and there is gonna be that confusion of identity. That's that's just part of it. Part
0: of the part of the journey, I guess. Right, but yeah. as you
1: get older, you also get more maturity. You get more life experiences where you can just start to disentangle. Hang on, that's not on me.
0: Yeah,
1: that's on them. Yeah. Right. That's them. That's not me. This is me. And actually what, what you want over the later part of your career, if you're lucky enough to have a long, long-term long career, is to start to get a greater sense of self. Who am I? Yeah. Because in Taoism, in, uh, in which is an Eastern philosophical tradition, uh, they talk a lot about – because it's very naturalistic. So it's like the strength of the tree is that it yields to the greater force of the wind. But it will always return back to its nature once the wind has passed, the wind always passes, right? So a lot of athletes get to a stage in their career where they don't have that strong sense of self so that something happens, like they get cut or the coach says something or it's a bad negotiation or it's a bad game. That's like a real, that's a blustery wind. Yeah. Right. But if you have that core sense of self of who you are, right, then you're able to, recorrect and and return back to your center and that's actually the really important thing for well i think in just general life experience yeah but also for a long-term athlete i think that's something that needs to be cultivated and that's what i tend to work with i'm not going to really do that with an athlete who's 18 or 19 still aspiring right yeah because i don't think that's their that's their um fight just yet
0: not their stage in life
1: maybe not no
0: yeah, I think that – and this is this is such an interesting one because when – so in the 2021-22 season, the WNBL season, I won the MVP award and it was my but, most amazing achievement and it was also my hardest one, like my most terrifying.
1: When you say hardest?
0: Because for me, I was like, wow, this is amazing – but why? Like I don't feel like I'm – why did people choose me for this? Like I I didn't even feel like I've been playing well. Like I don't feel like I was good enough for this. And my events following since then over the last year and a half, I've almost been searching for the confirmation that, yeah, yeah, no, I wasn't good enough for that. That just happened for, you know, whatever reason because I thought I was like, it's so amazing, blah, 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 but I'm not good enough for this. This is not – and I've since – and this is something that I've figured out in the last couple of weeks, I've been searching for ways to confirm that I wasn't actually worthy of that um, achievement in the first place. And it wasn't until I was able to sit down with my psychologist and actually be like, I just feel like I'm failing at this. I feel like I'm not reaching this experience. I'm getting cut from all these teams. And I just feel like it's it's confirming what everyone thought about me not being good enough for that. She's like, who's everyone? I was like, I think it's me. I think I'm everyone. I think I'm the person that's saying to myself, I'm not, I was never good enough for that. And then I was searching for that confirmation in almost every experience since, since then that I, well, I don't think I was good enough for that. And since I've been able to kind of unwrap that, like that feeling of like, Oh, I was, I wasn't good enough. It wasn't that I wasn't good enough for anybody else. It's in my head. I thought it was everyone else, but it was actually just me. I was measuring myself to this standard that didn't exist. And my thoughts of like, oh, everyone's saying all these things. I, no one was saying that. I was just saying it to myself, mm-hmm. right? So when when we talk about seeing highs and lows, right, like you, you're talking about the stability and going from low to high to low to high. Yep. Personally, like my last couple months have been experience after experience, whether it's been an amazing one or yep. not so an amazing one. And after – After a a tournament, right, so for me personally, let's say I, I just went to the World Cup for 3x3 after being at a WNBA training camp and the WNBA training camp is the high, right? It's amazing. It's great. I loved my time in Chicago. Super cool. You get cut and then that's your low and it's like, oh God, I don't like, okay, like how do I, how do I process all this information? And um, I, I really can't say enough of how much I enjoyed my experience at Chicago. I did get caught on an aeroplane on my way to the first game. So that's a that's a, an experience that I have to manage. Like on an aeroplane, I'm about to land like, okay, well, where am I going to live? Where right. am I going to go after that's that? That's a tough situation. Yeah. Then then I land and I go, oh, I don't know how this happened or all of a sudden Twitter knew before I'd even landed. But then I get invited to go to Vienna for the 3X3 World Cup. So it's like the low was like – It was a high, you're down there and then you're up there again. And then the experiences in professional sport where we don't get time to process things properly, do you think that catches up to us eventually or is it almost like you have to be so in the moment and process things and put them down and then move on to the next? Or do you think there's importance to like sit back and reflect on that, I guess?
1: Yeah, I think it's a timing thing because I think there's a time to not think and just push through and there's there's a time to reflect. And maybe make sense of things. I think that's really appropriate. The wisdom is knowing <laughs> oh, which because like if I if I'm if I'm in a, a car accident and I'm, I've got bones sticking out the side of the road, I don't want the ambulance officer coming up going, Fuck man, I've never seen anything like that. <laughs> yeah. I want him in professional mode. Like this could be really upsetting situation, yeah. but I don't want to hear that. I want yeah. like cold hard bang bang bang, right? This is what we're doing. All right. Let's all process that down the track. But yeah. in this moment. No, it's probably it's probably not going to help me. Yeah, right. And so, actually, that's a that's a life skill when with within itself. Like, okay, when is it just knuckle down, deal with shit, and we'll deal with it when we can? But right now, we've got bigger fish to fry.
0: Yeah. Do you recommend like? It, I guess this is personal, depending on who you talk to, but like actually, journey journaling your experiences and writing stuff down to then look back on them, so they're not because you know in in hindsight. Sometimes when we look back on experiences, they're either in our head a lot worse than they actually were, uh, actually were or yeah. a lot better than they actually were. Do you think that journaling is an effective tool for stuff like that?
1: Or well, When I went to college, I started a journal and it's still going, right? And okay. so I'm like, what, 160, 165. So that's a, that's a lot of journaling. <laughs> it's a
0: lot of pages, right? yeah.
1: And so, you know, the literature is pretty clear on this too. If you want to be really good at something, reflective practice is a really important part of developing if you want to master something. Mm So, I'm always a big advocate for journaling because, particularly writing, because writing is the deeper form of thinking because you're literally making constructions as you go when you're constructing each letter, which I feel is different when you're typing. But then I'm not a good typer, so maybe it's It's just a me issue. (laughs) But actually, there's an experience that was really, really grounding for me, but very embarrassing. In 92, my first year, I I got on in like at the, late in the game and we were down and then I had a couple of like lucky plays that just went in, right? Didn't know what the hell I was doing, but it went in and we ended up winning the game. And so I'm like, all right, yeah. what, what's the paper gonna say? Like, and I wait, cause it was in Hobart. And in those days we have these things called newspapers. Oh which yeah, it, yeah. Right?
0: never heard of that before. Yeah, right? of
1: yeah. No, but you would actually get the delivery like at 5am they would start to come out. Mm-hmm. So I was out, you know, as you are, and then I waited deliberately until I could get the first paper, like at five in the morning at the casino in Hobart. And I read it and I read the article and I'm like, oh, right, what are they going to say? What are they going to say? I was like, oh, David Sniff did a couple of good things. Yeah. oh, that was really crushing. Yeah. But then I was like, okay. So that's not really what other people say isn't really a good marker. Yeah. And if I'm going to waste all this time and energy, like is that really a fruitful use of my time? Because – (laughs) <laughs> You've had this experience, I'm sure, where you're like, oh God, what's this game going to look like on film? What's oh, the coach yeah. going to say? Mm-hmm. Right, and then you watch the film and it's like, oh, actually, that's not as bad as I thought. Mm-hmm. But then you do something really nice, and you, like, I can't wait to see this. And you're like, oh yeah, doesn't seem to capture the magic of the way the I remember yeah, it. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. right, because our our <laughs> it's subjective. Yeah, like just because we perceive stuff doesn't actually mean we're perceiving accurately. Yeah. Right, and the brain, you tend to find what you're looking for. If you're looking for misery, you'll find misery. If you're looking for joy, you'll find joy, Mm -hmm. right, because the brain is only searching for what you find important. Mm -hmm. And so when my partner was pregnant with our first child, all I saw were pregnant women everywhere. (laughs) I don't even know if they made regular women.
0: (laughs) They were just pregnant people. Yeah,
1: everywhere. everywhere,
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, Sorry, yeah. (laughs) But then we had a newborn. Didn't see anyone was pregnant anymore. Bloody newborns everywhere. Prams yeah. are everywhere. It's like, what's going on here? Do you think I see a pram or a new? I don't even know if they do. They still make newborns. No
0: prams, no. right? Don't know. Yeah.
1: Why? Because back then, my partner was pregnant. That's very important to me. And what I want to do is I want to see other pregnant people, and I want to compare my partner with that person. Oh, sh- Cara's doing this. That's okay. And That person's doing that, and okay, that's about the same. Okay. And my nervous system could relax because there's nothing really unusual or different, right? Because I'm looking for cues in my environment about something that's really important to me that makes me think, okay, everything's okay or, oh, actually we better address this. Right? Yeah. So you weren't, you weren't born with basketball being important in your life. You've developed that. Yeah. You've learned that. You've entrained that. And so now basketball is really important there's the source of your joy, and there's the source of your misery, because it's all relative to what you find important. Yep. Right? Yeah. And that's actually all negative emotion really, ultimately really is, is it's saying that it's a communication that something that's important to me is under threat, and that's negative emotion. Mm -hmm. Positive emotion is I'm moving towards something I want. So if you play a good game, that's positive emotion. It's joy, happiness, exploration, play, all those kind of things. Yeah, It's your nervous system responding, we're moving in the right direction. And that's really – we really do create our own joy and misery. So if I'm out on the road mm-hmm. and I let someone in in traffic and they don't acknowledge, they don't wave or do anything like that, I'm livid. <laughs> like I'm really angry.
0: I do that all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Right. There's no rule. Yeah. It says that. And not only does it control my – not only does it place um, – create anger mm-hmm. when I'm frustrated, but it also changes my behavior such that if it's raining and it's bucketing down and someone lets me in, I'm winding down my window, I'm waving out my hand, I'm putting my hand in the rain, a hand out in the rain, and I'm acknowledging. Yeah. Because I think that's important. There's no rule that says you have to do that. Yeah. I've created that rule. So I've actually created my own frustration and anger in some ways because yeah. that's the rule that I have. I've made that rule. I wasn't born with that rule. It's not a. It's not an absolute rule of, of life or humanity. But it's your rule. It's my rule. Yeah. Right. And so often when we feel negative emotional, when we're really struggling or difficult, finding things really difficult, it's like, well, maybe there's a rule of mine or a belief of mine that's under threat that's not being valued, and actually that's what negative emotion, if you feel negative emotion, it's actually a good point to go, okay, actually, what's really going on here? Because I'm responding to something. Yep. What am I responding to? So you get cut from from Chicago. Yep. Negative emotion. Mm-hmm. Or what's going on there? What's under the threat?
0: Yes, that's my basketball career in my head. Obviously, it's not that large, but in the moment, that's what I'm thinking. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. and
1: that, that's what your nervous system's trying to communicate yeah okay so then once you recognize that you go oh okay what can i do about it yeah and then you get transported off to something else and it's like, oh god okay now i've got to focus on yeah. this right but then did you get any sort of positive emotion um like after that
0: from almost from the moment i touched down in vienna it was like this is amazing like that the the turnaround of high and low was so fast, yeah. low and high, I guess. It was like all of a sudden. And so my, my fiance plays on that team. So, you know, it's the first thing I thought of was like, oh, I get to see my fiance. Like, that's amazing. Right. So the that that was my positive. It's yeah. important to you. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the it was almost like the the outside of basketball experience overrided any sort of basketball. Cause, you know, Vienna, wow, amazing. Alice's, uh, the coach Damon Lowry is like, he's my guy. Like he's yep. one of my favorite people ever. And the my teammates, amazing. And then basketball was the afterthought. It was like, oh yeah, yeah. And I get to play basketball too. Like, that's great.
2: Right.
0: So, like the the positive experience of that was like, I've always prided myself on being more than an athlete, you know, but I've always been like, I put a lot of work in into myself. Whether it's you know my own mentals or also my hobbies and the things that I do and the right. way that I define myself outside of sport, so I, I try really hard and I'm not always successful at this. But when I start a new experience, I think about the way that it can benefit me outside of basketball. Even going into WNBA training camp, I was thinking about you know getting to explore Chicago with Atlanta. I was thinking about creating new friendships over in different areas, yeah. the art museums, the all those other things. And it doesn't mean that I value my basketball experience any less. It just means that I know that if I am too overwhelmingly basketball, I tend to get more negative than I do positive out of those experiences. Yep. And I think that um, in, in my situation, the, the next step for me, so after we had played the World Cup, I think we we're going into our semifinal game. So we we're about to play France. I got a, a text message from my agent uh, being like, hey, would, would you want to go back to Chicago? And I was like, wow, I've already canceled that out of my head. Like, <laughs> I uh, And I had about five minutes to make a decision
2: of like, oh, yeah. is this
0: something that I want to do and I need to let people know, otherwise they're going to sign another player. I'm also about to play a semifinal game into mm-hmm. something that I've been really committed into. And... That turmoil in my brain meant that uh, I don't think that I performed at my best in that game, but right. I, I, I made the decision. Yeah, I'm, I'm going back to Chicago. Okay, I'll do that. And I, in that in that split se- split second decision, I was pretty I was pretty in that. I was like, yeah, okay, I'll go tomorrow. Um, I'll do this first, and you know we ended up going on to win bronze. And I, I was after that initial semi-final game. I, I then was able to flip my brain over, and I was really intensely locked into what I was doing for the next couple of hours. Yep. Um, the next day, when I had woken up, I was like, "I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I want to go." Like, and I was like, "Why do I not feel like I want to go?" Good question. To ask. So I sat down with my partner, and we were we were speaking about it, and I was like, "I just." I feel like I've been moving around so much. I don't know if it was going to be. No one could really give me a proper answer whether it was like a one week thing, a two week thing, a three week thing, mm-hmm. a four week thing, or a rest of season thing. And I, um, on top of that, I got some news, some personal news from back home. Um, and I, the the bigger parts of my life that are family, that are. You know, my professional life outside of sport, which is stuff like this, mm. um, it's also, you know, my art stuff, my design stuff, the things that make me feel at, like a better sports player, like a better basketball player. I, In that moment, I had this incredible push-pull of like, all right, well, if I say no to this opportunity, is it ever going to happen again? Um, if I say no to this, am I ending my basketball career? Because this is something that I've wanted so badly. And even when I got cut, I had said, the moment you guys need me back, I'll be there. I was like, I, it, I think for like three hours I was sitting there with my partner and she's like, just make a decision. I was like, I can't like the inner turmoil for me was like, so, uh, it was, oh God, it like, it made me so tired. I was Mm. exhausted and I, I actually went to the airport and I was like, all right, I'm going to Chicago. I was like, I'm in the airport, I'm going. Um, and I get there and I go to check in and my name's not on any flights. And I was like, oh, all right. Well, I and I end up communicating with them and the flight ends up being later. And so I have some time to sit and think. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I call some family members from back home so they can explain that situation to me a little bit more. And then on top of that, I'm thinking about, the things that I value, like time with my partner, because we yeah. just got engaged the day before I left to go to America. Mm. Um, I'm thinking about time with my brothers and my new baby brother. I'm thinking about being able to represent my country again, time with the Opals, things like that. Yep. And in that in that moment, I had to make a decision. All right, I'm not going. And it was like as soon as I said that, I felt like that was the first time in ages I actually chose part of myself that wasn't basketball. Yeah, right. And I, in that moment, I felt like, whoa, like, oh, my God, the weight yeah. that got lifted off my shoulders. And to Chicago's credit, they were amazing. They took everything, you know, really well. And um, I loved, I cannot say it enough, I really love them as people and they were great in the way they took that information. Now, for me, the next thing was is like because that was the first time I feel like in my career I have chosen my non-basketball self, I've been struggling with like this – I've turned down these opportunities. Is that ever going to come back? Blah, 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 blah. Mm. How how do I, I guess, like what are the steps to be able to look at that from a distance? Like how do I distance myself to really look at those two things and realise that like at the end of the day they're not basketball and me, they're all me but I chose one part, I guess. Like how do I even start to... I don't know, roll that process. It feels so massive.
1: So in in more recent psychology, there's been a real focus on what's called acceptance commitment therapy. Excuse me. And part of that is um, living a values-filled life and mm-hmm. so the idea is that those values, if you have a couple of values that these are really important to me, this is the type of person whom by whom I wish to be known or th- these are really important to me. So for me, one of them is honesty, right? Like I want to be honest. So if I have to make a decision about, you know, someone says, what does this look like? Does this look good or does this look bad? Well, it can be really quite confronting to go, yeah, it looks great. And you're like, oh, it yeah. Right, right. But that's... That is all created because I have this value of honesty. Yeah. So if you have these values of how you wish to be, this is really useful. I've done this with the, at the basketball players' association with a few players who are going through a bit of like existential sort of crisis about who I am as a player, or they're at that period where, you know, they've left the, the start of their career and now they're entering mid phase or later. Is how do I deal with all the complexities that's going on with my career? Like where do I go? What choice do I make? Like you know, how do I cope with all this? And one of the things to, that is really beneficial in those moments is to be able to work out your values, two or three, that are really core and central to you, so that that gives you a context by which you can work out what choices or decisions I'm going to make or it actually give you, gives you a, a refuge from the storms and the chaos of life, right? Yeah. Because the problem in life is really – Complexity, complexity, complexity. Yeah. And when we're struggling, we're really struggling because there's too much complexity. Yeah. Right. So at that moment, what you want to do is reduce and simplify. And so the values is a good way trying to work out what values are really important to you as a person. That gives you that stability, that core sense of self, so that, you know, the winds of life can, can, you can yield to them, but you cannot. You know what you're coming back to. The difficulty is like if you don't beacon. know what you're coming back to, yeah. then you can just be scattered constantly yeah. by the winds of change and there's always going to be winds of change. And it's like, you know, you you really want that core sense of self and you, those deep roots. And that's really what modern psychology is really focusing on now is having that core sense of self. For so many years, it's been religion. So I went, when I was in college, I played with two shooters. And one was really like, you know, from down south where they're really deeply religious. Yeah. Right? Like through the family and he really believed in God and all that sort of stuff. And there was another guy who was just from big city and didn't really care about God and was really quite secular and, you know, just did yeah. his thing. But one thing I noticed was if if they both shot really bad, had a bad game, like 1-7 or something like mm-hmm. that. And I've never had a lot of sympathy for shooters anyway. <laughs> but.
0: Right there with you. <laughs> I have well, no idea how they function. It makes no sense. To no, me.
1: it's a different. Like it's completely different. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, they would have that bad game, and and then I, watching them, at some point, the guy that was like deeply religious would always bring himself back to, okay, well, the Lord works in mysterious ways, or well, I just serve. I've got to honor God because He's given me this gift of, of of basketball. So I'll honor Him and I'll get back to what I do. Yeah. But basically, what was happening was he was able to simplify. Find a meaning to get through the suffering mm-hmm. and reduce his own suffering. So part of my what drove me to become a psychologist and help, particularly with athletes, is to help ease the unnecessary suffering. You're going to have to suffer, yeah. like that's just part of the system. If you want to be good, you've got to suffer. Yeah, but that's where the growth is. Yeah, right. Is this and but <laughs> oh, what I noticed looking back, reflecting on my career, is I had a lot of unnecessary suffering. Yeah. Because I just didn't know any better. Yeah. And so that's part of what drives me is to help athletes say, that's probably, that's suffering, that's probably inbuilt and it's part of the the struggle.
2: Yeah.
1: Like even physical suffering. Like it's, you know, pre season, right? It's all kinds of suffering. But this stuff where you're up till like 3 a.m. because you're worried about what the film session is going to reveal, that's probably not going to be (laughs) productive. But it's also over the long course of your journey. That's that's really going to work against you, right? Because it's going to fatigue suffering. your system. Yeah. Right. But even just being able to go, okay, what what's what's fair enough? Like, what am I? What's a challenge that I'm actually going to have to deal with here? And what's like, no, no I'll, I've got to eject that because I don't need that. I've got enough going on, right? Yeah. Even even having that sensibility or that that sense of self that you can do that and discriminate between that, yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah. But that's bitter experience, how you tend to learn that, unless you have really good mentors. Yeah. And that's the value of older players. Right? Because they've they've lived this experience and why younger players will always gravitate, if they can, towards older players. Because they can sift out a lot of the things that aren't important. Like you go through life, you've got to work out what's important, what's task relevant, and what's not yeah. task relevant. Yeah. And when you're starting out, everything might be relevant. You don't know. Yeah. Right. And so the benefit of experience, the technical benefit of coaches, but I don't think enough of them really embrace this is like, I think the best coaches I ever had were really good at saying, there, that's extraneous. Yeah. That's not, that's not a battle you need to fight. Yeah. Stay on this path. Because yeah. when you're young and starting out, it, there's paths everywhere.
0: Oh my God. It's like, it's like a maze. It's like trying to figure out which one to embark on. And right. I really do, um, I think, relate to what you're saying about mentors because something that, I've realized, um, especially in the last couple of years, but then, you know, recently when it came out that I chose not to go and the the media release was I chose not to go to Chicago for personal reasons, right? The the older Opals or the more experienced Opals, um, the more experienced WNBA players that I have contact with and even some um, other people in my life that are non-basketball related, they were the ones that reached out to me and like some beautiful interactions of like really vulnerable words. Like we understand when it, when it says personal reasons that there's, there's always, don't listen to this stuff. There's always more and choose mm. yourself and mm. some really. Really cool messages from and conversations with people who have been through something similar and have then given me some insight to like how to maybe move forward or to how to maybe uh, focus on something else or even just like someone sharing their experience, which yeah, makes me feel like, Oh, really someone else has experienced mm. this too, right? Mm. Cause it, that, it was hard for me to tune out the noise of when I, when, when it was personal for personal reasons, yeah. a lot of people took that and ran with it. To create all these narratives that didn't weren't even relevant to me at all. And I do my best to stay off of social media in areas um, of, of times when I know things are gonna be like really loud. Um, and some of the narratives were hilarious. Like someone, someone thought that Marina and I had um, ended our engagement because on the same day she signed to go to Spain. So someone took those two things and were like, this is what's happened. And then there was this whole Twitter thread about it and right. whatever. And that that stuff is just like that doesn't affect me in the slightest. I just thought it was funny. Um, then there's the ones where, like I had said before, um, the fear of people taking me being open about mental health and using that to say that I can't handle situations. There was, I had a moment of weakness where I actually went online and there was so many people saying, oh, she, she just couldn't handle um, being a professional athlete she couldn't handle the WNBA and so you know mm. all that stuff and I actually like that is when that the compounding fear of like oh so I like maybe I should stop talking about this stuff because everyone's going to think I'm weak maybe I should stop being maybe I instead of saying personal reasons I should have been more specific about why instead of saying personal reasons I I could have given a really vague answer about choosing to play for Australia instead of what was actually happening right and I there was this whole fear that then kind of started to develop where I was like oh my god everyone's seeing it as I was too weak for that experience and all this stuff but then the grounding of having you know mentors or or you know the people in my life yeah. that have experienced those things reach out to me and you know, talk to me about things that they've experienced, mm. what, you know, what that decision looked like for them, um, how, you know, even just someone, you know, like Tess Imagines is such a brilliant human. You know, she was like, I'm so proud of you for choosing yourself. I was like, oh, my God, like uh, tears, like, you know, it's yeah. just because feeling seen for that, for, you know, the real reasons as to why I chose myself, I guess. But I think that, I mean, now like that that example that you gave about the newspaper, right? It's tenfold in social yeah, media now. Yeah. Oh, tenfold. 100%. And I I deal with some of it, but to the to the depth of what some of at the athletes experience with bigger social media followings, or even the younger athletes that are about to experience so much more media exposure than mm. something I experienced at nineteen. At nineteen, it was like if someone sent you an Instagram message, it was like ooh, someone watched the game. But like <laughs> yeah. now, like obviously, there's I'm not actually on Twitter, so my information comes from secondhand sources. And I think, what is your advice, not just to me, but to I guess, other athletes that have to deal with all of those outside voices, especially in situations where we're not sure if we've done the right thing, how do we tune out that noise, man? Like how – like I do my best to kind of stay on course and that mentor thing was huge for me in the last couple of days, even just being able to talk to people like that. But for an athlete who, say, has signed with a college and it wasn't the right college and everyone thinks that it's the wrong college or or they've done something in a game and everyone – it goes viral on TikTok. I don't know. Yeah, yeah how how does an athlete or even a person because it's not always just athletes but how does someone deal with something like that
1: well i'm i'm grateful that i'm so supremely unqualified for this discussion <laughs> because i don't do social media it's not my thing i i had little as little to do with media as possible when i played yeah. um so but that's because i actively chose that mm-hmm. I don't need that because I probably can't handle it and I would really struggle if I had any kind of social media presence because this is how I look at it and this is, shows you how much of an outdated dinosaur I really am. <laughs> but the way I look at things, this have you ever seen one of those nature documentaries where they, all the animals go to the water hole? Yeah. Right. There's great things to be found at the water hole. Yeah. Right. There's food. There's water. Great. There's predators. Mm-hmm. All right, if you're going on social media, you go in the waterhole, right? And you will be fed, and you will find food, but you could be food. Yeah. I can't. I can't go any further than that because it's like the as a as a species, we're f- very finely calibrated. Our nervous system's really calibrated to what other people think of us,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's just exponential now. Like in my day, I had a I had a funny nickname. I had a funny name, that, well, you know, because I, I was terrified going out into, especially in the states, a white guy called Stiff. Yeah, like, oh, <laughs> that's that's a burden. Yeah, right. So I would cringe every time um, we would come out a game and we're announced. Yeah, like my name was going to be announced. I was terrified of that, right? And that's in front of sixty people. Yeah, right. And now everything can be broadcast infinitely, so it's almost like in those halls of mirrors now, where you see your reflection. Yeah. infinitely. So I actively chose to stay away from that mm-hmm. because I didn't think I was strong enough to deal with the negative. And I also knew that the positives that I would get out of it would never outweigh, outweigh. the negatives because yeah. I think we do have a, we do have a default setting where we're risk averse.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So something negative about us is going to be more powerful or have more of an effect on the nervous system. Yeah. So there's this old story of um of zebras, people who would study zebras. Yeah. Right? Because they're black and white. Yeah. But they, they stand out like dogs balls. They don't they're not camouflage to their environment. Yeah. Right. They're black and white and zigzaggy. Have you heard this? No. Okay. So they're they're there and they're studying zebras and they write their notes and they look at them, oh shit, which one was it? Because they all look the same. Yeah. So then they got clever and they put a red mark on the hide of some zebras or ear tag them. Yeah. And so now they'd write their notes and look up, oh, it's over there. Right, right. And oh, he's over there now. Right, right. Yeah. then they went back to camp, patting themselves on the back. Job well done. We'll learn so much about zebras. And the first thing they learned was every zebra they marked got eaten <laughs> because now the predators had something to target on the hunt. Yeah. They stood out. The camouflage of the zebras, when all the zebras are running, the zigs and zags or mix and match, and the predators can't work out where one starts and one ends. Yeah. So if you, so I use this example in school. If you're in class and you speak up, because how 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 common is a fear of public speaking?
0: Very common, yeah. Right,
1: because when you're out there, you're vulnerable and now the predator, as far as your nervous system's concerned, the predators can see you. You're yeah. visible. You stand out. Now, if you get up and you speak and you nail it, then it's great. Yeah. The positive emotion, just bang, right? Yeah. Great experience. Actually really elevating. But if you get up, and you make a dick of yourself. Whew, that's right,
0: like ready attack. Yeah, you,
1: you're you're out there, right? Yeah. And now, now, what could happen? Your social reputation,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like that's really difficult to deal with, right? And we're calibrated to where are we in the hierarchy?
2: Yeah, am
1: I safe? So most people's camouflage is to not speak up. Yeah. Like you know, in a room full of people, most people won't speak up. Everyone had the same question. Everyone wants to know one question. Nobody asks it because everyone thinks, well, everyone else knows this, right? No, I'm not going to put myself out there and ask because then I'm revealing to everybody just as you are with whenever you discuss about mental health. Now you're revealing a part of yourself. Mm-hmm. And so now you are vulnerable. Yeah. But if you survive, you're stronger for it. Yeah. Because in learning theory, if you if you have a task that's really simple, it's like Goldilocks, if you have a task that's really simple, you're not going to grow from it, right? You'll get bored. Yeah. Because it's too easy. It's like if you went and played in under rates.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, you probably get even more rebounds, right? Like it's going to be <laughs> – yeah. right? it's, it's probably not going to sustain you or, 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 or fulfill you. Yeah. Right. If you went and played in the NBA and you're a starting player on the NBA, the yeah. men's, that's probably going to be quite difficult. Yeah. Right? Where we learn and where we grow is when it's just outside the edge of our ability. That's where the growth is. That's where the failure is. And that's where the struggle is, but if you survive, that's where the growth is, and that's where we become stronger. Mm-hmm. So um, through the PA, I'm helping a couple of athletes now where, you know, they've had they've had a difficult off season because of not getting contracts or you know not getting looks or they're worried about not getting court time, things like that. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a struggle. But if you're able to contain yourself, stay on task develop yourself for the sake of mastering your ability you've probably got a better chance of getting through that struggle and you come through you'll be stronger for it yeah right yeah you could lose there's no guarantees right so you get out and you talk about you know mental health and that you could be vulnerable and you could lose out from that but then going back to what you said before you could get you, as a, a contract negotiation time you could lose for anything Yeah, like coaches bang on all the time. Like box out, box out, box out. Okay, I'll box out. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get the rebound if I box out.
0: I've never boxed out a day in my life.
1: (laughs) But if I box you out, you're not going to get the rebound. you're you're probably not going to get it. But I'm probably not going to get it. Yeah, and someone else will get it. Yeah. And then at contract time, they go, "Yeah, you didn't get many rebounds."
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) I was boxing boxing out. I was doing what you told me to. Yeah. But they'll use that. They can use that against you, right?
2: Yeah.
1: Why? Because if they have an idea of whether they need you or don't need you or want you or don't want you, mm-hmm. then confirmation bias kicks in and they'll just find the information that reinforces their point of view.
0: Yeah. No, right? absolutely. I think that um, the, the one or two things that I've been told in the last couple of weeks that have really, um, especially with the social media stuff or all or, or the, the finding contracts and coaches thinking a certain thing about you mm. is um, when you have people in your life that um, David Buer calls it that you're Blossomers, like the people that try yep. and uh, uplift you and um, support you. And it might be one person, it might be mm. two, it might be three. And I, I guess that might tie into the mentor space. I'm not 100% sure. But um, I, I was given the advice to when, especially if I'm aware that something's about to go off on social media, right, right. to let the people know in my life not to put the red tag on my ear for me don't I, if i'm stepping away from the social media space or i'm not looking on twitter or i've changed my privacy settings on my mm. instagram and i don't have facebook anymore is i don't want the people in my life to be like hey did you see what so and so wrote about you here or did you honestly did you read about this well because i used to not put those boundaries up and the people in my life used to think that that's what i wanted to hear right and they they like oh we're just letting you know we're just letting you know (laughs) and they they, they thought that that was a good thing um between dave and my partner that they they were talking to me about some stuff and they were like hey you need to tell people that that's that's not helpful and i guess like my advice not only to myself because i've had this conversation (laughs) with me in the mirror many times but also to that that younger generation that is going through that really hectic time of you know, trying to navigate how to, you know, what to listen to, what not to listen to, what noise is relevant, what noise isn't relevant, going off your story of the zebras, don't let the people around you put the red tag on you, you know. if if, Don't let the people in your life and most of the time they're super receptive. Like if you have a close group of people and you're like, hey, just don't tell me about what so-and-so says, don't tell me about what's going on, create those boundaries for yourself and then not only are you creating a safe space around yourself, but then you're also setting your own boundaries to the people who might just be trying to help you but don't realize that that's actually a breach of your own boundary. Mm. Um, it's super, like, that was wild for me because I was like, yeah, but they're just trying to help, so I'm not going to tell them to stop, right? Yeah. They're just trying to help. They're just trying to give me information.
1: But what I take from that, though, is that was a really autonomous act. Like you, yeah. you sort of asserted some kind of control of yep. the inputs in your life. And yep. So even that alone is what's really beneficial, right? Yeah. And even if they don't follow the policy that you you want them to it's like i'm standing up for myself here this is what i think is important and this is what i'm i'm going to deal with so getting back to it i because i tried to escape the ups and downs by being level
2: yeah right
1: if you're on social media like i can only see that the ups and downs really being magnified yeah and also because as a species we Because we're a social species. So, what other people think of us matters because we're constantly walking that tightrope between I'm unique enough that I offer something to the group to keep me around, Mm -hmm. but I'm not too different than I'm a pain in the ass. Yeah. Right. And we've got to straddle that tightrope the whole time. And our nervous system's always really trying to pay attention. Am I, have I gone too far or have I not? Right. And that's finding your place on a team. It's like, well, what do I offer to the team?
0: Where do I stand? Yeah. Right.
1: And so, a lot of the, a lot of the, of a lot of our feelings and our emotions, because we construct our emotions, are in response to where do we sit around other people. And if we feel like we belong and we're safe, then our nervous system settles. Because yeah. we come in today, we're in person, your nervous system's regulating mine, mine's regulating yours. Yeah. Right? This trust there. We've yeah. had a lot of, uh, like, a long experience through your, your dad and yeah. things like that, right? So we're not relative strangers. Yeah. So automatically, our nervous system is lowered because you trust me and I trust you. Yeah. So now we can get on the business and we can have a conversation or we can do things, but if I don't trust you, you don't trust me, our nervous systems are high, then it's really difficult to do anything really meaningful. It's like running
0: in mud, yeah.
1: Right, it's really difficult and we're constantly scrutinizing our environment for that. So then if you go on social media, like you can be all over the shop because all right, one moment everyone loves you and it's great and and it really is really great because you're getting this huge boost. Yeah. Like you really belong, or not only do you belong, you have a place where you're upheld with esteem, and that's amazingly, um, oh, not benefit. It's just an amazing sense of yeah self, right? Like it's like if you're out performing in front of a hundred thousand people or something like that's. That's pretty it's cool, the
0: right? dopamine, it's gratification, it's the, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's all just pure joy. Yeah. Right? But the downside is if it doesn't come off. So you can opt out.
2: Yeah.
1: Or you can ride the wave. It's like in that movie, what was it, Parenthood? Um, and the grandma at the end goes, oh, you know, some people like to go on the merry-go-round and it just goes round and around. But I always like the thrills and the spills of the roller coaster up and then down. And yeah. It's kind of a bit like that in a way. Like, okay, ride the highs and lows. Yeah. If that's your thing, do it. Like Choose great. to do
0: that. Yeah. No, I get that. I think the one of the last things I want to ask you about is the um, like emotional fatigue, mental fatigue, physical fatigue, how that all ties in. And we spoke a little bit before we started about how post-tournament or post-experience, maybe post even a massive game could be, you know, any one of those things, a plethora of those things, the – some people, and not just myself, but I'll, I'll give myself as an example here, um, post the tournament and the decision to come home and then being home, I was exhausted. Yeah. And not just the type of exhausted where I'm like, oh, physically I'm a bit tired, mentally I'm a bit foggy. Like I slept like all through the day, all through the night for like a week, nonstop. Like I was just sleeping. And hmm. I, I know that's not an experience that's uh, only – happens or has happened to me I I know so many people that because I you know I, I, I put a lot of things out on my social media I put something out there like I've slept every day for a week and the amount of people that had reached out being like yo this happened to me after I finished season or this happened to me after this tournament this happened to me after why do our bodies sometimes get not just physically tired but so mentally and emotionally tired that we just shut off or like feel the need to like Maybe, maybe it's not sleep for everyone. Sometimes it's not sleep. Sometimes it's just needing to zone out or play video games or whatever. Why do our brains and our bodies do that post those big experiences?
1: So I I don't think it's hugely scientific, but I, I tend to break it up into like physical energy, emotional energy, um, the physical, uh, mental energy, right? Mm-hmm. So <clears> – <throat> The brain's role, the stomach's role is to digest food. The brain's role is to predict and solve problems. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems it's constantly trying to solve is how many metabolic resources do I need to dedicate to this task, Mm -hmm. right? And to do that, it's got to sort of project forward about, well, how much energy am I going to need? Like this is glucose, water, oxygen, all that kind of stuff, right? How much am I going to need and where am I at currently? Mm -hmm. Because then it can fill up the gap, right? So thinking is a really taxing process. So you can sit there and think and you're using – your brain's 3% of our body weight, uses 20-plus percent of our resources. Mm-hmm. So thinking is a tiring process. So you think about everything you did in the lead-up or the build-up, like there was training and there was effort and there was like – you know even just narrowing your thought process, like if you don't want to think about too many things and you're keeping maintaining focus, well, that's if you want to focus on something, you're suppressing – overthinking that's a tiring and taxing process so there's just so much energy expenditure that you're you' you're doing mm-hmm. that there's got to be a there's got to be a, a come down where you've got to you know get some compensation for the yeah, energy that that's been expended yeah right and you can really you can really rally your resources usually because you've you're focused on the outcome or you know like if you know all right um, I've got the world's coming up. In six months, automatically your brain is going to start calculating. Okay, at this point, I should be here, and so usually unconscious, right? But you're actually. I used to have this argument with a coach for many years. I think we pace ourselves.
0: Yeah.
1: As a species, right? And as a coach, he was really frustrated because he's like, "No, no, it's balls to the wall, just flat out just every effort,
0: all the time." Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Like, well, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is like maybe in the grand final game. Game four of a five game series, maybe that's when you really want to have some reserve energy, Mm -hmm. right? At really crucial times. So, what I think you're describing is more like, well, how emotionally exhausting was it?
2: Yeah. And maybe you
1: need some time to just, uh, yeah, right? And recoup and to regather. And yeah, sleep is a really important part of that. But relative to how much effort you put in, like for how long beforehand? Like how long did yeah. you prepare for all that? It's probably a relative expenditure out. Like like if it took you six months to build up and build up, it's like, mm. well, that's not one night's sleep is gonna fix that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the that's the um the outlook, no? Like sometimes people think, Yeah, you sleep for two days and you'll be right, on to the next. You know, like yeah. the importance of giving ourselves time to I guess have that not just physical rest, but mental rest and like then giving ourselves grace over the following week, month, whatever it is, I, I feel like that's missing somewhere in our education of how to recover, right? Because like we get told like ice bath, eat well. Yeah, well sleep. ice baths are bullshit. Yeah. Well. <laughs> sleep, you know,
1: like you're not well, gonna get me on ice bath.
0: <laughs> I hate it's some dudes. Uh, but like like, you know, where right. in our education as athletes do we need a like is that something we should implement as like an, an, in an earlier age group, like, hey, take some time here, and allow yourself some grace. Is that something we should be teaching at Vic camps, at Oz camps? Like, where can we put that in our education that recovery isn't as simple as eat, sleep, that ice bath? Mm. You know.
1: <laughs> the, the the difficult thing I think is it's so subjective because when you're talking to Jade, it's like her recovery is going to be really brief because she just wants to play again. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like everybody's really different. So that would be that would be really hard. But and it's something you learn. And not only do you learn, but you know, have different needs at different stages of your life, right? Like yeah. the energy you needed when you were 19 or, you know, the amount of recovery you needed when you were 19 is probably different now.
2: Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So it's it's a really that's where mm-hmm. knowing thyself is actually a really good way to go. If you know who you are, you know how you tick. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's really powerful because then you can, no, actually, I need to take some time off here. Right? Yeah. But actually what I think happens, I, I felt this, like, when I joined Adelaide, Phil Smythe, who was really, like, experienced player, he's like, no, you have to take a day off. And, like, oh, I can't take a day off Yeah. because, you know, if I don't take a day off, like, I'm losing day on, you know, people, he's like, you're not going to be able to sustain that champ. You've got to be able to take a day off. But that was really difficult to learn. I got so good at it that I never wanted to take a day on, but you know what I mean? <laughs> like yeah, I know exactly what you but mean. But I don't think a lot of athletes think about that because actually one thing I wanted to just bring up, you've yeah. spoken a few times about um, like how much should I like – oh, no, sorry. It's all right. I forgot. It doesn't matter. Oh, we'll find out. We'll find mm-hmm. out again. Yeah, it'll
0: yeah. come back to me. anyway. Yeah. I, I, if it does come back, just ping and yep. go again. But I – I in your role now with the Players Association. Say so people don't say we don't know what you do and what I don't know
1: what I do. So well, that's fine. what do you
0: do? Say we don't know what you do. Say the 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 basketballers listening, whether in the WNBL NBL, I'd hope they know what your role is. But give us a little rundown of what you do at the ABP ABPA now, and like like I said, like you are a psychologist, but you also work with the ABPA. So what yeah. is your role with them?
1: So. It initially started off with transitioning, helping athletes to transition out of their sport. Mm-hmm. Um, but now more so what I'm doing is if an athlete feels like if, – if a club doesn't have a psychologist that an athlete can access, then we can sit down and um, they can contact me or, or the PA and let's talk about where you're at and maybe we can help you find a psychologist. Like if you're interstate and you want mm-hmm. to do it um, personally, we'll help you like interpersonal face-to-face sessions we can help with that if it's performance based stuff we'll just like i've been working with a few athletes where we we'll would just catch up once a week once a fortnight and just over zoom or whatever and just talk about what's going on for them performance wise mm-hmm. if it's a really more of a well-being issue cuz you really want to distinguish is this a performance based issue or is it more of a, a life well-being thing if it's a life well-being thing we'll we'll try and either connect you with someone where you are mm-hmm. or i can help with that yeah because i'm i'm qualified to do that Mm -hmm. generally though for the most part it's either been around transition or performance-based stuff and the thing is like working with one athlete who's um had a bit of difficulty lately like for them i think half the work that they've achieved was just because they reached out yeah right that's where that's half the battle
0: it really is it literally is yeah
1: yep and so it's really difficult like a We've had a few unfortunate, like long term. I've got about three or four athletes that I work with who are like long term injured. And it's just a matter of checking in, see how they're going. But when an injury first happens, I don't tend to check in because that's when everyone gets, Mm -hmm. you know, they they get inundated and that's all really good. And then there's a vacuum after a couple of weeks and everyone sort of forgets. But so I like to really help with longer term injured athletes too because that. That's a really difficult process, but it's also can be really like, as far as I'm concerned, you're not a professional athlete till you've had some kind of a yep. decent injury, which is sad to say, but it's yeah. actually a part of it.
0: It's the experience. It is like, part of
1: the experience. Yeah. But you talk about unnecessary suffering. Yeah. 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 That, that, that can be really difficult. So I guess through the PA, it's, it's helping athletes when they're injured, transitioning out of the sport, or really just dealing with difficulties. If it's performance based, I can help with. If it's industrial, you know we have Jacob and Giti yeah. and Mel and all those people, and that's fine. I don't do any of the industrial stuff. It's more just the the psychology that I'm there as a resource.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. If especially if the club doesn't have those, those resources, resources, yeah, because yeah. Yeah. you don't want to step on anyone's toes. No, no, no. But we, what we what we sort of see is our perspective is like, well, I'm just caring about you. Yeah, I don't actually care what club you're in, or where you go, or where you are next year, or where you're not, or yeah. like it's. This is why I I really want to do this is because it's like I know what it's like to go through. I play for five clubs, right? Yeah. So it's, we're here for the narrative of your career,
2: mm-hmm.
1: not just where you are. Yeah. Right, and that's what I think is could be of benefit to people who choose to seek the help, mm-hmm. because ultimately we heal ourselves. So people come to therapy and as far they've got all these problems like one of the f- one of the first things I'll often do is like create get you to create a misery map mm-hmm. where it's like you put yourself in the middle do a drawing put yourself in the middle and then all around put all the things that are causing you stress or negative emotion like on a bit of paper mm-hmm. but don't just say basketball it's like okay is it be more specific is it the coach is it your technical ability is it a teammate is it yeah. like social media whatever yeah. but be really specific and then link them all back to you. But give everything a relative weighting. So if something's really messing with you or causing a lot of distress, that's a thick line. Yeah. Or you can use colors. And if something's not really, it's a pain in the ass, but, you know, it's there, but it's not a real big deal, but maybe it's a dotted line. But you want to give everything a relative weighting. And so what you're doing is if you come to therapy, your nervous system is experiencing negative emotion as one big cloud, right? So the sun's up there. The sun is what gives us life, love, happiness, right? but all these difficulties come in this complexity in life gets in or, or in our careers and then the nervous system just sees it as one big cloud yeah and you're sitting under the cloud and you're not getting access to the sun yeah and then it's like you come to therapy and then you discuss and you describe to me what's going on for you yeah so basically what you're doing in your brain and your nervous system is you're taking this big clump and saying well it's this you're and separating it's this yeah it. Yeah, you're yeah. separating and then little bits of light can drift in. Yeah. right, And then you see them as little chunks and you're like, oh, okay, well, if I made a phone call, maybe I could reduce that a bit more. Yeah. That's going to be there for a while. So maybe I can't do anything about that. What could I do about other things? You're not necessarily creating a to-do list, but what you're doing is you're reconceptualizing the negative emotion, the things that are really difficult, yeah. into you're eating an elephant one yeah. bite at a time, That's so what I
0: was going to say. Right? It's like the weight of this massive cloud right. versus being able to like Compartmentalize it into lots of little things, yeah. and it's more digestible, and it's less heavy, yeah. and it's 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 easier to look at something and tackle it that way. I, I you got me to do a misery math once. We did it. Oh. When we were sitting in Zendan in 30- yeah, right. right, right. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Uh, but it's like it's it's like teaching your brain to realize that it's not this giant, yeah. you know, like overwhelming, looming, because that's what it feels like sometimes. It really. Is. But if
1: you're explaining the cloud. To someone else you're, yeah. you're explaining it to yourself yeah. and now when it's broken up or it seems a bit more digestible well now you can engage your brain to do what it's meant to do and that's yeah. to solve problems but if the problem it's a difference between trying to solve a problem that's this yeah. versus a few a bunch of problems right yeah but what's changed the thing that's changed is you've approached the situation like i work with kids who have school refusal right yeah so we have two systems in our brain, one's approach and yeah. one's avoidance, right? Yeah. Okay. So school is a scary predator as far as their nervous system is concerned yeah. for whatever reason. could be bullying, could be academics, yeah. whatever, right? And so now this is them. School's really scary. I won't go. Yeah. So what happens? You retreat. The problem gets bigger. Yeah. And then you retreat again because it's bigger and scarier. And then it's. it just yeah. becomes that. Right. So what can you do? Here's the problem. It's scary as hell. I'm not trying to reduce how scary it is. We're trying to get you to take the smallest possible step forward in the face of something that scares you mm-hmm. and what? And hopefully you'll learn, well, that wasn't as bad as I thought.
0: Yeah, and it gets smaller. And
1: then you might take another step. Yeah. And then this has got to retreat. But two things happening. This retreats, the problem gets smaller, but you get more capable. Yeah. Whereas if you're retreating, you get less capable and the problem gets bigger. Yeah. Right. And so it's not really a sense of lowering anxiety. Yeah. More about practicing approach. Yeah. Or trying to be braver. Right. Yeah. And they're literal physiological states. Right. And so it's only bit by bit, but that's fine. Right. But that builds self-efficacy. Yeah. More so than self-esteem, it's self-efficacy. The fact, well, I've done that. And if you conquer that, now maybe you can conquer something else or maybe – does that make sense? Yeah. No, yeah. that makes
0: total sense. I think that – I like that idea that like – I guess like in the moment, that small little step, you almost wouldn't notice it. But then if you take such a – like the person watching you take such a large step back, you realize yeah. over time they're actually moving a long way and this is becoming so much smaller. Yeah. But in the moment it seems like, I don't know, maybe smaller than what it actually is over a longer well, period time. Well, it's relative.
1: It could be huge for you. Yeah, Right. Like for me, I don't like to go out socially. Yeah. So for me to go out is like that's a big step. Yeah. Because that's not my – my default setting is not yeah. to go out. Yeah. Lockdown wasn't so bad for me. Yeah. <laughs> I thought yeah. it was the wrong policy, but it wasn't so bad for yeah, me yeah, like, yeah. personally. Right. But the the point is you can't assume what other people are going through. Yeah. Right. Because I was shit scared for most of my career. Yeah. Right. I can still remember <laughs> – Not this is – troubling in a way that I'm going to use this as an example, but after September 11, yeah. right, I hadn't had this thought before then, but yeah. after that, I'm going to some games, I'd be like, well, if they called in a bomb threat, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. If they cancelled this game, yeah, I'd, I'd be okay with it, right, because yeah. that's how scared I was. Yep. Well, where's that fear come from? Well, there's something really meaningful about this game, and if we lost, then something meaningful is under threat. Yeah, As far as I'm concerned, it's like my own rule. It's like oh,
0: That's the dude. rule that you created within yourself, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: Or the expectation that I want to achieve. Yeah. And if I move towards that expectation, life is sweet. But if I feel that that expectation or that desire or that belief is under threat or being challenged and then it's in front of other people,
0: yeah. oh, man, that's bad. Yeah. I guess that draws me into my last question for you, which is actually really perfect because <laughs> I think – if you had the chance to talk to yourself right before you started your prof- your professional career, yeah. what would you say to yourself and would you do anything differently? By land By land
1: <laughs> 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 I
0: guess that uh, it counts for something, right? <laughs>
1: well, what would I say to myself? Well, I think I think I would say whatever most of my mentors, were trying to counsel me on. Yeah. Right? Because that's really what you're looking for, is you, you're looking for an older version of yourself to tell you, hey, it's not what you think it is. It's not as bad as you think it is, and you're stronger than you think.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? But if, if something's really important to you, that's going to skew your perceptions. Mm-hmm. Right? So my kids are no more important or less important than any other kids in the world, but no, not to me. Yeah. It's an illusion, but it's a useful one. hmm Right? But technically, they're not. But you'd show and tell my nervous system that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're Marty, right, your brother? Yeah. He's no more or less important than anyone else, but try telling that to your nervous system, right? Yeah. Like he's just another person. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. So we're constantly skewed our perceptions by what we hold as important or really valuable.
0: So when – like, I know I said that was my last question, but <laughs> I just – one more – when were you able to realize that? Like at what point did you realize that your perceptions were skewed and like you kind of or, or like you started educating yourself on that stuff? When well, when were you able to look at things subjectively like that or did it only start once you you got your like uh like professional uh education or stuff like that?
1: Yeah, well actually it most people take 6 years to become a psycholo- psychologist and it took me 17 because I kept not I didn't have the grades, right? I kept yeah. not being able to advance, so I was getting so frustrated with not making him not getting accepted into a master's program. Yeah, that I said, all right, well, I'm going to YouTube and I'm going to educate myself on a lot of things, right? So I listen to a lot of lectures and podcasts and all that sort of stuff. But I don't think anything's unveiled in one moment. You can have an aha moment, mm-hmm. but for what you're talking about, I think it's sort of a con- it, it's a it's a it's a river that got stronger and stronger
2: mm-hmm.
1: over time because the f- one of my first insights was like that newspaper.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, they didn't wrap me up as as, as much as I thought I, they should have. Right? Yeah. Then videos, oh, watching video um, of games, it's like, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Yeah. Or, I wasn't as good as I thought. Yeah. Right. So all of those are like breadcrumbs. Right. And then you listen to some podcasts or you read Eastern philosophy was really helpful for me too. Mm-hmm. Right. But, it's not. It's something I sought, and mm-hmm. I sometimes I wonder if the value was that I was seeking, seeking for the end and searching, like yeah. coming for help and asking for help. Mm-hmm. Like that's half the battle. So me searching for it. Um, I don't know, in the grand scheme of things, whether or not you know that helped or hindered my career, but it is what it is. But in terms of any advice, any of those moments, I think it's it's cumulative. Yeah. You get a bit here, and you get a bit here. I can I can still remember when. One, one of my – I don't know if getting sidetracked, but no, – No, you're fine. My, so in 96, it was with the Devils and we kept losing. We yeah. lost all the time. And we really tried. Like we yeah. were really trying, but we just weren't that good. And we always needed a really sort of older mentor, guide, like someone that had been around that could keep us stable because we yeah. were just all over-shot.
2: A bit. Yeah, That's
1: what young teams, young players are like, right? Yeah. That's part of it. But I remember we're playing – we were up by two with about 40 seconds to go. Against Melbourne, the great Melbourne Tigers. Yeah. It's like, how are we going to win? We, we might win. How, how do we win this? And yeah. then eventually they end up winning and buying yeah. three points or something. And I went out with Warwick Giddy for a couple of beers after the game. Yeah. And I was a real soft spot for Warwick because he's the first non-teammate that knew my name. Yeah. Right? You know how big that is? Like,
0: yeah. Yeah, right? I know what you
1: mean. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, Warwick right? Yeah. And so it wasn't right. We're having a couple of beers and he goes, fuck Stevie, I thought, I thought you just had us. And I was like, in that moment, I was like, you know what? I never really deep down thought we were going to win. I was actually more curious about how they were going to pull it out. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's not being disrespectful to the organization. No, that's just, not at all. Right? And then, But that was the first moment I was like, oh, shit, my opponent can doubt too.
2: Yeah. Because
1: to me, that's the dirty secret in sport. You could be good, but they could be gooder and they win. Yeah. You could you could suck. They could su- be suckier. Yeah. And you win. Right? Yeah. Like it – Did I say that right the first time?
0: I think so. You're
1: good and they're gooder and you lose. Right. Yeah. But anyway, I guess the point was that, okay, if I can get out of my own head and just keep – play the next play, play the next play, play the next play, they're more likely to self-destruct. Yeah. Because if you won 100 games of basketball, you probably only won 90 – you won 90 of them at least because the other team self-destructed before you had a chance to. Yeah. But if you hold your nerve and hold Mm -hmm. your nerve and see what happens – I used to think that was like a real weak mentality, but actually, no. I, th- I kind of think like my observations is like a team can self destruct in the first minute, yeah. in the last two seconds, after halftime, during halftime. It's actually a, a point of just holding your nerve. But if you take that to you as a and your own sense of self and your career,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's like if you're really sort of to the best of your ability, develop a core sense of self. Mm-hmm. Be okay with yourself, be friends with yourself, be on your own side mm-hmm. at least, as much as you can, then you're more likely to stay the course. And if you're more likely to stay the course, you're more likely to be successful. And and when it comes to the helping athletes with the unnecessary suffering, if we can reduce the unnecessary suffering, ultimately that's about how do I keep the course for me personally? Yeah. For my career, or stay on stay task focused. Yeah rather than being drawn away from the task-irrelevant stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the value of experience. That's probably why you were looking for a vet because, like, you didn't know how to um, define what that was. But what you're saying is, like, after that experience, you realize a bit more. And after that – and you'd realize that, like, maybe, like, five years down the track, another team would be like that, and they probably were in need of something that you were once in need of, and it's, like, a growing cycle. Anyway, I digress. We need to wrap things up, but – I just, I I can see uh, there's just so much that personally I've taken out of this, but also like I really think sharing experiences is is a huge thing and for like hopefully for people listening, they didn't just hear the specifics of what you or I were talking about, but maybe some broader things and I can see Darren over there just like nodding his head, writing down moments and writing down times and he's going to have like a billion Dropbox Dropbox files for me to go through of like 10 second wisdom drops, you know, <laughs> from David Steer, you know, like it's, it's going to be brilliant. And like for, for us personally, as growth, um, for like what I'm trying to do and the purpose behind my conversations with people, having someone who's not only, you know, done their career and, uh, in sports and done their, you know, their professional ca- career as an athlete, but then stepping into a space where they're able to, you know, People like to say that they've got experience but then being a psychologist and then helping people move on to their next experiences, like there's just so much of your brain I want to like take off your head and pick through it, you know, like there's so much and I, I, I think – um, and I don't know if you know this, when when I had brought up that I, I wanted to have you on the show and, like, I I had so many people be like, oh, he'll be amazing. Like, the, even just the way that he carried himself during his career, like, it'll be so cool to see where he talks about it now. Like, I am really keen for people to listen to this, not just to learn about me but about you too. And then also um, hear what you're saying and then hear what you're available as as a resource to players that are currently playing, like, yep. I think sometimes you see the resource on paper and you're like –
1: Oh, totally. You know, and there's yeah. there's
0: no personal aspect to it or you don't really understand what that means. but
1: Or the need's not there yet.
0: Exactly. I think it not only putting a face to the name but then also hearing um, your experiences that you've gone through and also hearing the way that we were able to have discourse about some of the things that has happened in my life, I think it's super important that this door is left open for everybody. And I, I say the same thing is – Like not just me seeking help from other people, I always have my door open to younger athletes who need to reach out Mm. to be like, hey, what direction do I go to here? And then I can point them in directions. I think the importance of conversations like this can never be undervalued ever. It is like it is my why. It is my why and the fact mm. that I'm home and able to do this stuff again just makes me, like, so energised. and. Um,
1: Which is partly because you're prepared to be vulnerable. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. And that's the benefit. There's going to be a downside to it at different always. times. Always, yeah. But this is the benefit, right? And it's a very pro-social benefit.
0: Yeah. It's the strength that I find in it. And I think that every right. new experience that I have where I'm able to sit down across from somebody and have these conversations always makes me feel – like oh how have I not been doing this for longer and so I uh you know not just on behalf of myself but under the surface pumped by Reebok we are really really excited for people to listen to this and thank you so much for coming on the show and you are so hip enough to wear that jumper I better see you wearing it around with a VPA shirt but thank you so much for coming on and um yeah i this episode, yeah, this is one of my favorites so far. Season two, episode one. Can't wait for you guys to tune in. Thank you, David Sniff. This was Under the Surface. Thanks, Holly. That was Under the Surface. If this episode brought up any concerns for you, we recommend you call Lifeline on 13 11 14.